Michael Smith, Ph.D., also known as McCall, is a Michigan licensed psychologist. He was educated at the University of Chicago and the Chicago Theological Seminary. He holds a certificate in analytical psychology from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago and is a certified focusing trainer of the Focusing Institute of New York. An internationally recognized Jungian scholar, he has taught Jungian psychology and shamanism in Europe and South America. He has a private practice in Michigan. He is the founder of the Crow's Nest Center for Shamanic Studies, and he is the author of Young and Shamanism in Dialogue and Psychotherapy and the Sacred. And I would just add that um, that it's uh, it's apparent that that you're occupying um, a rare junction here between Jungian theory and Jungian practice and um, indigenous shamanism, and that that you're right there at that junction. There's not too many people there, and so part of your work and part of your um, dialogue and practice is about this subject of the shadow that we deal with a lot. And so, um, so we've been looking forward to interviewing you for a while. Yeah, we're we're very honored that you're taking your time yeah, to do thank, this with us. Thank you, thank you for doing that. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to finally be meeting you face to face and uh, doing something. So great. Maybe you could just start with some background, and I would like to ask you, in a more sort of mythic way, how do you see your own um, your training and your past and your path? as a mythology and as this role has developed, um, how, how do you interpret your own mythology and your own path in this way? Hmm, okay. Uh, well, I was raised uh, in a hmm, evangelical Christian family. My father was an uh, evangelical minister and he had a large church and was well-known in town. And I... Uh, was awash in his dogmatic belief system, right. which never felt right for me. And, uh, you know, in his version of uh, uh, reality, his mythology, almost everybody was going to hell and going to be judged forever and ever because they didn't believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But, you know, my friends at school, my neighbors, I could not believe they were going to hell. And uh, it just the really pissed my father off when I asked questions about it, you know. And uh, and this this went on into college, in fact. He would get so angry he'd want to hit me, you know, just because I asked a question. So uh, finally I read uh, everything, everybody he didn't want me to read, you know, starting with Darwin, you know, and evolution. It wasn't creationism in his sense, you know, and... I decided I would spend a whole year reading nothing but what he told me not to read, uh, so the devil wouldn't get hold of my mind. And at the end of that year, I, I could no longer hold on to anything that he believed or taught me. And uh, so that was the first big, uh, you, you might say, awakening and liberation. Mm -hmm. But then I didn't know what to believe, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, because I had nothing to replace it with. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit like when Jung and Freud broke up. Uh, Freud had, uh, I mean, Jung had adapted to Freud's psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and it was as he was finding that doesn't fit him very well, mm-hmm. and the lectures he was doing, like at uh, uh, the, the school in the Bronx, New York University in the Bronx, and at, at Clark University, he was starting to deviate, and uh, this caused this break with Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jung didn't really know what his own psychology was. He mm-hmm. said, I, "I didn't know what myth I was living by." Mm-hmm. And so his his big crisis came with that because his identity was as a big medical psychologist and Freud's heir apparent, his identif- identity and his belief that his future was going to be the leadership of the psychoanalytic movement, and it mm. came to a crash mm. almost overnight. So it was a state of trauma. And, uh, and then with his great courage and resourcefulness, he started doing these shamanic-like descents into the... Unconscious, even the collective unconscious, you know. And he would be in there for hours, you know. Uh, he'd have these long passageways he would go th- down that would take time and run across burning sands. Uh, he spent a few days uh, living with a, a, a monk, an anchorite, you know, and described in great detail his surroundings, his sleeping quarters, the, the walk along the cliff, along a stair stairway into his little cottage and so on and his lengthy conversations with this guy so Jung had this great capacity to move into the other world or the unconscious and to stay there without being totally submerged in it be conscious in it you know and interact and this is a very big shamanic motif and about the time that I broke with my father's mythology, mm-hmm. uh, I took a course in Jungian religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, wow, <laughs> uh, I was excited because, uh, you know, maybe I could find a personal mythology, a personal theology or something to replace what I'd lost. And uh, I remember asking a friend, uh you know, how do you know there is a God or a spirit or the sacred? He goes, it's my son, my son. He had a one-year-old kid, you know. And uh, that gave me a clue. It's like, ah, yes, it's in the things around us. It's so close. All we have to do is look. We don't need some creed or Bible or something right. to find it. So that opened things up. And uh, about that time also, I got interested in Iliadi. Yeah. And I contacted the man, exchanged some letters with him. And another one of my professors says, oh, you're a mystic, you know. He saw I was getting into Jung and to Iliadi. But it was really Iliadi's big book on shamanism, you know. Yeah. And yeah. He, he's the one that invited me to the University of Chicago. Mm. Wow. Uh, so there was that, and then there was the psychedelic experience, which I had the first one. I was 17, but 19 was uh, like a big mystical awakening. And uh, and then in graduate school, uh, right towards the end of it, I got into the psychedelics again. And again, it opened up something that looked like what Jung was talking about in the Red Book, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I was actually so overwhelmed by the material that was then bursting forth that uh, uh, I got into Jungian analysis. Right. And I had two sessions with this guy, Tom Kapasinskis, and he says, oh, I know what you're going through. This is this is a, a shamanic a- awakening. 
You know, he says, you, what you need is an elder. You know, you, mm-hmm. you need to find someone, you know, to kind of guide you in this process. So I did that. And I live in uh, southwest Michigan. And I actually live on Potawatomi lands. It's, uh, Ojibwe and Potawatomi is here. Mm. And they speak the same language. So they have the same longhouses. And mm-hmm. uh, I kind of pushed my way in and, and uh, got a mentor. Yeah, and that helps quite a bit. Uh, it's it set me up with some rituals, mm-hmm. and you know the the rituals or the sacred ceremonies are, are ways to uh, practice the mythology. You know, the mythology is in and the stories are in those ceremonies. So that gave me something for a while, but in the end, uh, every person today, uh, especially if you're you're not a member of an indigenous group, you have to work out your own mythology you know i wrote my own creation myth you know just impact my own values into it you know so that i i had a story to tell yeah it's uh it's we're we're having the same problem most people who aren't taking on a magician role or who who are not sort of living through that that archetype that magician that constantly has to keep on you know the, the the magician is always having to keep on get getting more and more objective right and just seeing more and more of a higher perspective of their own um programs and the Process. the programs of the culture and all of that and keep on getting out and out and um and then but the more you get out the more the, the this type of person gets out of the game as it were um the more you find that you can't live the mythology, right, of the society as easily, like you just said. And, um, and so you do have to, like you said, write your own mythology. And then I, I, I look back and Melissa and I do this. We look back at, at our own life and we try to figure out, okay, well, what is the story? We're not living through this or that cultural mythology so much so what is the story that's been playing out and we go back and we go look for all of these index points in our life that are like signposts that are like markers to show us what what is the script that has been written that is playing out now and um it's sort of shocking when you start to put together your own script and you start to realize that there is a script playing out. There is a mythology. There is a, a, a self-made... A, a greater story. There's a greater story of the the universal life force, the archetypal recipe of your life is coming through you. And, and you can look at your life and and start to find the greater story that's coming through you and it's shocking and it's like it's like whoa is that really who i am is that really what i'm here to do do you know what we're saying yeah right yeah right uh one way or another we're going to live out some type of story and uh, a a big story the mind is always making up stories but the reason you have to make your own mythology is rooted in the fact that we live in a time when we realize that whatever we believe is just our version of reality. So if we want to 
mythology to live by, as Joseph Campbell says. We need a really good one. We need to really think about it and work it out. And it needs to have the values that reflect our truth built into it so that it can support us, like a good map or cartography. So, um, okay, you're asking about my mythology, too, and uh, in addition to that, uh, Potawatomi teacher I had I also later got a Cherokee teacher because I have a little Cherokee blood and then uh, spent eight years with a guy in Ecuador a, a Peruvian uh, Taita or Ecuadorian Taita Yachek and uh, uh, the teachings were all through uh, storytelling kind of transmissions and uh, through chats you know and there I, there was one uh, uh cosmology that I adopted from that, I, I live it as a metaphor, but the idea here is that the great force of life, uh, which is uh, God, or the infinite to them, uh, Hatun is its name, uh, is an egg, but it's of infinite uh, size, so you, it's not bounded really, but uh, nevertheless, this feminine image of an egg, and inside that egg is... Um, Lake Wiracocha, uh, from which the great god Atahualpa arose. Lake Wiracocha is the collective unconscious. It's a lake of wisdom or the Akashic records. Everything has ever happened in the mind of God, so to speak, is there. And there's concentric eggs within concentric eggs. But there's a chant uh, that goes with this so that you can actually live and feel the mythology. And it goes like this. Atun, where a coacha, bajamama, ashpamama, tukwishunguan, kuyanimi. So inside, uh, Hatun is like where a coacha. Inside the egg of like where a coacha is the leg of Pachamama. That's Mother Nature. Stretches throughout the whole cosmos, okay? Mm-hmm. Within that is Ashpamama, which is our particular piece, planet Earth, Gaia, if you will. Uh, and then there's you, there's me, and so on. Mm-hmm. So eggs within eggs within eggs. And uh, there are variations on this chant, but um, they all really pretty much express the same mythology, the same cosmology. And then there's um, the concept, you know, of a subconscious, an ego conscious, and a super conscious, mm-hmm. uh, or a uh, a lower self and a higher self with the ego personality in between. Well, they have that too. The Lakota have it with Wonia, Nagi, and Nagila. The uh, Polynesians have it. The uh, Kichwa of Ecuador, the Addis Kichwa, uh, is called Hanukpacha, which is means heaven. Well, the heavenly realm, but also the higher self. Kaipachu, which means uh, the middle worlds, but also the ego personality. And Ukupacha, which is the the subconscious depths, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the chant incorporates that too. So it's like, Tukwi, Hanakpacha, Kaipacha, Ukupacha, Tukwi, Shungu, Wankui, Animi, Tukwi, Shungu, Wankui, Animi, Tukwi, Shungu, Wankui, Animi. And it's entrancing, 
and I used it in my healing ceremonies. My apprentices know this stuff well, uh, and there are many other chants, but it's all embodying the cosmology. And I really believe it, and yet I know it's a mythology, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, just the way I believe certain poems are very revelatory of truth, mm-hmm. you know. But if you listen to the Polynesian version or the Lakota version, uh, they're going to have different words, they're going to have different images that go with it. But there's this underlying archetypal commonality that you can feel, mm-hmm. this structure of reality that's been discovered across cultures. You know? Right. So, yeah. in the Polynesian version, and we have it also in Quechua, uh, the psychology gets richer, okay? And in Polynesian, like Hawaii, for example, you have uh, Omakua, which is the higher self or over-soul. Now, this thing is much bigger than Jung's archetypal self, mm. okay? Uh, it's your God, and it's on an adventure across eternity, Okay? And it creates out of itself a little seed, an mm-hmm. acorn, a holograph of itself, mm-hmm. and makes that your higher self for this life. Mm-hmm. Okay? So then that, uh, you have your mother's energy and ancestry, you have your father's energy and ancestry, you know, the gametes meet, then the egg, and as this mythology has it, when you draw your first breath, the Omakua, or higher self, descends. Mm. Now, that is your daimon, your guardian angel, and what I call the archetype of you. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. And it has an irreplaceable, unique blueprint or pattern for you to express, to live throughout your life cycle. Right. To unfold that thing, you know. James Shulman, when he talks about the acorn, it's the same thing. But the acorn's packed with DNA, you know. So there's this structure to each individual soul, or spirit, really, coming in, that you're meant to discover and to live. Yeah. So this kind of gives you an idea of my own mythology. But, uh, you know, Robert Moore and I both were influenced by Alfred North Whitehead, this process philosopher, right. whose uh, whose ideas are based in are rooted in quantum physics, really. Mm-hmm. He's a quantum philosopher, if you will, and in his vision of the divine, uh, it's kind of like yang and yin. It has uh, a conceptual mental aspect, and it has a receptive, almost feminine feeling aspect. But every moment of your experience is felt. Every moment of the experience of any creature anywhere in the multiverse is felt co-present with you. Okay? And it's preserved. That's like your akasha or, or collective unconscious that's being taken in okay. formed. And it lifts your experience up into what Whitehead called a primordial nature, the divine mind. And it contemplates possibilities. Mm. So... It's like the creator of the archetypes, but also it, it has created your archetype. And each moment it is um, contemplating new possibilities that are seasonally relevant to your situation yeah. and mm. offering them back. I call those invitations. So I've worked out this kind of a mythology for myself, you know, yeah. to replace the one I lost when I jettisoned my father's world. And also, I like the Greek mythology. I draw from that. Hermes is very strong for me. Yeah. 
what I just shared with you is kind of a demonstration or Hermes kind of figure. Right. Uh, be- because Hermes is moving, uh, unlike any of the other gods in Greek mythology, in all three realms, the upper world, the lower world, the realm of Hades, and the middle world. He's bringing messages like an angel. He's offering guidance. He's shape-shifting and being a trickster. Times his shadow side, you know, it creates mischief and what have you. Um, and uh, he doesn't want to be pinned down uh, to a social role, a bed of procrustes. Doesn't want to be uh, stuck in any one box. It's always elbowing to get out. And I was that mm. way, I mean, like from birth, you know, yeah. which is why my father and I didn't get on. So... Uh, I own uh, from the Amerindian cultures the mythologies I was given through my initiation. But as a white Western man, I feel I also have to honor Western culture. And so I bring in the Greek mythology and uh, also alchemy, which I like. And, uh, you know, Hermes plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. Hermes tries magistus, for example. Uh, And... uh, yeah, and then the philosophical traditions, such as Alfred North Whitehead. So I'm a bridge builder between cultures and also uh, worldviews. You know, everybody has a different worldview, but building bridges. But I see that Jung, Jung did this too. Yeah, yeah. Jung, Jung put extreme uh, importance on the imagination. You know, so his way of... Uh, doing soul recovery work, for example, was through the imagination. He had his famous moon lady, you know, said she lived on the moon. Do you know that story? No, I don't, we don't, I don't know that one. Mm-mm. Okay, so when, when Jung was in uh, the Asylum Bergetzli in Zurich, he uh, had this patient who had been in there for several years since she was a teenager, and she was catatonic. That was her diagnosis, catatonic mm-hmm. schizophrenic. Jung went in, introduced himself, tried to meet her. She ignored him. But Jung did this every day for many months. Mm. He would just go and sit in silence. And one day, she said, you know, I live on the moon. So there was a level of trust somehow established here. Oh, yeah. I, no, I remember now. Okay, go keep going, though, with the story. Yeah. And Jung says, oh, tell me about the moon <laughs> you know and she hmm. laid out this whole mythology she was living she was sexually molested by a brother's friend or something and she had retreated to the moon where she had a place of great importance she lived in a tower all the rest of the women on the the moon uh, with their children leave lived below the surface and she was like a sentinel or a guardian living in this tower to warn people should the uh, demon lover come right uh, Allah, the sexual perpetrator, so she could warn them, you know. Right. And Jung said, ah, so now you know. You have to come back. Mm. She says, why? He says, because you've already let me in. You've communicated with another human. Oh. And she didn't like that, but in fact, she recognized that was true. She had let him in. Now, there's more going on than imagination. You know, Jung's yes. persistence in sitting with her, uh, his belief that relationship was possible. But I believe uh, Jung underplayed the role of feeling. 
I think it was a man of great feeling, you know, and the imagination kind of grows out of the depths of feeling. Yeah, that was know. his, that was part of his time too, though, right? Yeah. Men and the feeling state were still more disconnected than they are today. Yeah, right. But I think it was very big and young. Oh, 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 for sure. That was, yeah, for, oh, for sure. But still, even, even within, even in his, we, I mean, when we look back to his relationships and stuff, we still see that kind of patriarchal kind of thing going That's on. Right. Still, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've uh, tried to read the Red Book through twice. Uh, I've got it all marked up. I've got the big coffee table book, but I've also got the little book that's almost like a little Bible, <laughs> you know. But and that one's I've marked the heck out of that up, <laughs> and uh, I've made a stab at trying to read it cover to cover. It was just impossible for oh. me. Oh. Uh, my friend Robert Moss did it. I don't know how he did it uh, because I thought I was going to go crazy. You know, wow. the, the feeling that was stirred in me was so intense. Wow. You know. Uh, uh, Moss did throw the book across the room when Jung got into that visualization eating somebody's liver, you know. But <laughs> See, I, 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 we haven't read it. We've looked through the the we've looked through it and and looked at the images, but we haven't read it yet. Oh my God! So it begins with Jung. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, he's devastated because Freud has chopped his uh, his cojones off. You know. Mm. Uh, he's blacklisted from psychoanalysis, which right. was right. basically depth psychology in Europe at that time. Right. And uh, he was shunned, you know, as a charlatan. Uh, he was embarrassed uh, before the world, and uh, he got very depressed. So he starts out, my soul, where are you? He called out uh, to the spirit of the depths. And he talked about the spirit of the times, being like, right now we're we're dealing with our own time, but he was yeah. dealing with his time, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah. And what's happening in the collective consciousness and unconscious of the spirit of his time. But he was going deeper than that to the spirit of the depths. And that's where his first dialogues come from. His first acts of active imagination are coming out through his own groaning and the feeling like he's lost his soul mm. and is trying to get it back. And so if you can start with that and realize this man is really trying to save himself, you know, he's desperate. Yeah. 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 Well, so that, but, that may, maybe we could actually use that as the bridge into the, into the shadow subject because that's where, that's where he goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, in fact, uh, that book, in my opinion, this is an oversimplification, but half of it is a confrontation with the shadow mm -hmm. and uh, can be horrendous, parts of it horrendous to read, uh, because he dares to think the unthinkable. He d dares to confess what most of us won't confess mm -hmm. with great courage. But then the other half of it is more these transcendent figures uh, like heavenly figures. I mean, uh, first there, the, the biblical figures, you know, of, um, uh, uh, Elijah and Salome. You know, she's a girl that beheaded John the Baptist, but in this story that Jung was living, she is like a seer, you know, and, 
they morph into Philemon, you know, who's a kind of a uh, Gnostic uh, Merlin, a magician, you know. Mm -hmm. But the uh, education he gets uh, in the second half of that book, his relationship with Merlin is an upper world spiritual input. You know, he's he's been uh, for years uh, down in the shadows, you know, uh, collective as well as personal, you know. Right. That was confusing for him because there was, World War One was about to outbreak when he started in on that, you know, and he was seeing rivers of blood, you know, and uh, horrific images, and he thought he was going mad. Right. And then one day he sees the headlines and he realizes in his own sensitivity he was reading the whole shadow upheaval of yeah. Europe, yes. you know, was going on. So you, but you have, uh, like William Blake, this kind of mixture of heaven and hell, mm-hmm. uh, going on in Jung. But by the end of it all, this is great Liverpool dream where that's one, it's the city of life, you know, Liverpool, <laughs> yeah, uh, the pool of life, uh, and there's a magnolia tree in the center with gold and light coming up and four roads leading in surrounded by a moat. And he came back from that and he goes, ah, that's it. You can't get beyond the center. Mm. The center point is the thing. And of course, it's the axis mundi and the, the opening for the voice, the directing voice of the, the spirit or the daimon that guides your life. And it's, uh, uh, circularity, you know, is symbolic of embracing all of you, you know, all the Oh, and, and this is right, and this is where all of his, his interest in mandalas and all of that comes from. Yeah, after that point, he starts painting them every day for a couple more years, up to 1918, uh, whereas he finished the, the visions in uh, 1916, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he continued painting the mandalas daily because he was uh, serving as a military I forget what it's called but in Switzerland you have to do this military duty Yeah, and there yeah. was a world war going on and, and so he was in some camp some type of commandant and so to center himself uh, and to see what his psyche was up to he was drawing and painting these beautiful mandalas you know so he did that for a while but I was talking about myths Jung's myth formed out of this and, you know, he had this number one and number two personality he talks about mm-hmm. in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And the number one is the one that gets the education uh, as a medical doctor and, you know, has a career. It's like the ego personality. Right. But the number two, that's his archetype. And right. that's what this whole uh, descent, this Nekia into the underworld was about. And uh, Jung comes out of that with a whole mythology and uh, he produces the seven sermons of the dead, uh, septum ad, sermos ad mortuum, seven sermons of the dead, out of a synchronistic event that happened in his house where the doorbell was ringing, but nobody was there, you know. Mm-hmm. But the energy he was feeling in his body was tremendous, and so he just sat down and kind of did an act of imagination, and it just came through him. And he lays out his entire psychology, beginning with the Godhead and the formless, the void, you know. And uh, everything is there that Jung turned into books. So that was the conclusion of his Nekia. Okay. And 
the seven sermons is his mythology. You know, and it's not very long. I, re- I recommend reading. Uh, it. Let me, um, yeah, let me write down. Um, let me write down a note on that so I can, so I can find that later. Um, seven sermons. So, Mikhail, um, for for whatever reason, when Melissa and I got together four years ago, in a similar way, we downloaded all this material. And through conversations and dreams and epiphanies and, and synchronicities. synchronicities, and it shows up in that book, uh, Shadow Tech. And part of part of the part of that work is to try to define this domain of the shadow, and um, and so one of the things that was part of that was, well, if you're going to define the shadow, you have to define the psyche. And um, and so that's been part of that kind of investigation. And the, the, it's, it appears to me that the shadow is not... Well, here's, here's a simplified way. Do you, do you remember those pictures... Those circular pictures, remember the pictures that, that, that Freud drew of the psyche and had like a, a circle inside a circle? He said, here's the ego, here's the unconscious, here's the, uh, you know, out here's the superconscious, and in there's the shadow, and circles within circles, and Jung had some drawings like that. Jung had one of some strata of the earth, different strata. And I, I had been looking at biology, um, you know, just for different reasons over the years and stuff. And, and it, it dawned on me that, um, we could use this map of the, of the cell, the eukaryotic cell, which is again, that same circular mandala, that circ, that same circular archetype. And, um, if you could see that the ego is sort of the field around the membrane that mediates the external culture from the internal psyche. And the ego field only goes so far into the unconscious. And um, and then at that point, it goes all into the unconscious. And that shadow material could be in this model defined as any energy that should be metabolized up through the ego, out of the membrane, out into the society, out of into the persona, out into the society. It should come up and out, but it can't for whatever reason. So it's trapped energy that because not all energy has to come out of the unconscious and make its way into your conscious mind and get into the world. But the stuff that should for your development, you could see that as shadow material. And if you define the shadow that way, it kind of takes it away from this idea that it's a domain, like there's a cave in there, like there's like a door or a closet, and somewhere in your in your psychology there's a room where all dirty, nasty, ugly, evil things are kept. It's not like that. It's all kinds of destructive energy that's all throughout the whole circuitry of your psyche that should make its way into use but can't and is trapped and blocked or misguided or whatever. Right, and usually it's trapped by the wounds. It's blocked how I see it. It's it's just 
blocked energy, usually it's either intergenerational trauma or trauma that's been passed on by your parents. Yeah, that's and it correct. and it's blocked. It's it becomes a wound, a festering wound, so that this energy cannot be moved. Yeah, it's like a tumor or something like that. You could see it like that. So we could come up with different kinds of models to try to. Um, put our mind around this, but I just wanted to tell you that and then ask you to maybe define the shadow in Jungian terms and then maybe sort of redefine it as you see it because through all these years of shamanic studies, because those guys are different probably from indigenous people to people, but Generally, they have a way of seeing these things, maybe as demonic forces or other other things. Maybe you could just take that, put that into your pipe, smoke it, and then output something that you think is a good comment to output. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, <clears throat> first, let me uh, just state in brief the classic Jungian view, you know, that the shadow is the backside of the persona, which is the front side of the ego. Right. So it's like face mask, that's your persona, and what it doesn't include is in the background. Um, so uh, both these concepts, persona and shadow, are the outer shell of the ego. Mm-hmm. So whatever you disidentify with, for whatever reason, uh is not in your persona, it's in your shadow. What mm-hmm. you choose and what the world to think you are, you project that into your persona. So, yeah, so, so that's that's pretty narrow definition right there. That's the classic yeah, that's Jungian just, definition. That's just cla- classic Jungian. But there are contents there that uh, are not really... Uh, Bad. They, they can be creative. Uh, they can be inspired. They can be instinctual. They can be filled with life. But because of cultural relativity and your parental biases and their mythology, they say, "No, no, nice boy, don't be a bad boy, or right. nice girl, right. don't be a bad girl." And so you start forming and you start pushing stuff back. Mm-hmm. So it's recognized that shadow is composed of a lot of material like that. That's actually natural and healthy if it's given appropriate expression. Okay. And uh, Jungians also know there are traumatic parts, pathogenic complexes that are in the shadow, uh, that pain body stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, Jung's taken up the subject of karma too, trying to look at it from that angle, what Stan Groff calls the coex systems. Uh, and these patterns can cross lifetimes. Right. You know? Right. And they're not genetic. They're not. The, I mean, you could have had a past life. Uh, they're they're know, not genetic. A it's a, because we, we see this, um, a lot of these pathogenic complexes in our parents. And, yeah. So you've got different kinds of ancestry here. Uh, okay, so you've got the bloodlines of your parents, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, coming through the gametes that, you know, unite. Uh, you also have etheric energy of your parents that's going and influencing you. But if we go back to the concept of 
the omakua, or the uh, higher divinity that you are, uh, every past life that you've had lives in that lake of wisdom. It's not just a memory, it's alive, and it's an ancestor. Mm-hmm. So that's the third line of ancestry that's entering in. Mm. And um, those past lives can come in as guides, as sources of uh, guidance and inspiration, they even confront you or try to pull you back on your path. So uh, you can have ancestry uh, that's not genetic. Would you add? Would you add to those guides that can pull you back onto your path? Just the opposite version: destructive guides, demons, etc., that would in in interject their influence into life. Uh, not in Omakua, but okay. uh, there there are such entities, and the question is, what are they? And there's a lot of answers that all could be right. You know, so that's when we get to possession in a minute. You know, okay. we'll okay. Yeah. we'll take a look yeah. at that because I, I know Melissa is interested in that. But let me say that for me, uh, you know, I, I'm a healer, you know, a psychologist, but a shamanic healer of uh, nearly half a century experience now, and I've worked right. all over the world. You right. know, and I've uh, worked with, done ceremony with, taught alongside. More than 150 shamans from 85 cultures, mm. you know. I've been in the jungles, I've been in the mountains, I've been in the huts. Mm. Uh, I've learned from the best, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, learned from diversity of ways to do things too and ways mm. to perceive. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and... This whole thing of the the pain body, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the shaman is working with that all the time. Uh, the psychotherapist or the psychoanalyst, hopefully, would work with it, <laughs> you know. But the difference is, uh, the shaman or the psycho shaman, in my case, is going to speak the language of the psyche, speak the language of the unconscious. And this may be chanting, it may be ritual, it may be mythological. It's definitely cosmological at times, okay? And it's complex out there or in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have seen things that in Western culture, particularly in American version of Western culture, mm-hmm. people would be quick to reduce that to some type of, uh, that's a traumata or that's a complex Okay. Oh, that's an ego okay. state, this sort of thing. Yeah, I would tend to try to do that in, in, as an or, in, in order to, to, to map it out. You should always keep your skeptic, you know. So uh, you should fit, do your best to fit it in the best psychological models, but keep an open mind at the same oh. time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, let's, let's just, this is a good place to move into possession because it's part of the shadow dynamics. Okay, yeah, everybody's yeah, getting yeah, possessed yeah. right now. Yeah, please, please do. And but as you move into this concept of possession, can you can you also merge the concepts of the shadow as a Jungian understanding and this idea of the pain body that maybe not everybody that will listen to this knows Eckhart Tolle's term? And how is the pain body part of the shadow, or is it, or or how how do you 
how do you parse yeah, it that? is. It, it it is a big part of the shadow, the major part of the shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I've seen is I've looked evil in the face. Somewhere along the way, there's been pain, even for entities that have not incarnated. Okay. And mm-hmm. it's coming out of terrible woundedness and hatred, sometimes hatred at God mm. for what they have been through. Mm. You know? And I saw this clearly. For example, uh, I saw the handiwork of a mass murderer up close like nobody has ever seen it. You know? Wow. And uh, my question was, what would make a person do such a thing? Yeah. He had yeah. butchered a bunch of w- women and done it artfully and posted his photos on the internet so that other mass murderers could or uh, such murderers could admire each other's work this ah. sort of thing so uh, it was these uh, guys feeding each other and you know, I could smell the hatred in it but what caused that hatred yeah yeah. so uh, I did a lot of ayahuasca and went in uh-huh. And looked at that, and I could see very clearly the wounds, the trauma, really, and yeah. Yeah. the response is so profound. It is hatred at the ground of being for even existing. Whoa! You know, Whoa. Uh, really, really. Yeah, yeah. So this is what Jung would have called archetypal evil. Robert Moore certainly would have called it that, and that's different from the personal shadow. Yeah, existential. Hatred. Yeah. It's it's yeah. yeah, because there's no there's no there's no logic to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a way to put it. So that's out there. And uh, you know, there's also the kind of evil that's fear based, scarcity based. Yep. Let's get all for myself and my family. You know, screw everybody else. I'm the only one that matters. You right. Know. Right. Yeah. And we got a lot of that going on right now. Yeah, that's, that's basic kind of reptilian kind of the needs yeah. of an organism. But and the effects of all this uh, on the pain body, or you might say the memory uh, that uh, lives on deep in the psyche, mm-hmm. uh, is also traumatic. You know, the memory of your ancestors is part of the pain body. Yeah. Even the memory of your past lives, what you haven't digested, you know, say karmically, is part of your pain body. And then the genetics, you know. Uh, and to be born, like I had a friend born in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the India and the Pakistanis mm, yeah. don't get yeah. on. There's lots right. of hatred. And, uh, I could see this guy's past lives and his, and, uh, I could see this went back generations and generations as I was working with him. And he said when he was a small child, he was taught hatred and that he must hate the Pakistanis. Mm. Interesting. And I could see how this gun and his family, it's just like the fundamentalist religion that I learned. It's just passed on and passed on as coding. So that's in there. And that's a fear-based thing too. That it's it's that it's, it's, it's coding. Do you say that the coding is in? It's coding that manifests itself in physiological chemical recipes in the body and keeps repeating. Would you say that it's in the DNA, or do you say that it's being transmitted Epigenes. through a field other than that? Epigenes. Okay. Right. Got you. 
It's an epigenetic phenomenon, right? Uh huh. Well, that's the frame I'd put on it with the current state of science. Yeah. You know, yeah. On, on the genetic things. Okay. That's something that uh, what you learn uh, and what you experience as a child, you know, growing up, uh, can be so powerful that uh, your children and your children's children can have that same. Uh, experience and and so if the goal just i don't want to take you too far off because i know you want to go into possession just but really quick if if the if one of the goals of doing shadow work is to get into that genetically that epigenetic um trauma or the programming that holds the states of that trauma to get into that material that has been passed on generation after generation um i mean Traditional psychotherapy can try to do it. I mean, you can use all kind. We, I mean, we can talk about we've um, all kinds of methods to do that or whatever. But in our experience, because we're trying to access some of that material, and it's extremely hard to to. I mean, we're 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 we're, we're circumscribing it, but to actually get into it and change the code, and this is something that came from Melissa. To, to that's look, show him your. Your your tattoo there is a um, you have to lean over maybe because we're having some video issues but um, so yeah it's 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 very abstract but it's DNA because when I was diagnosed with cancer um, my intuition said that I would have to go into my DNA itself to fully heal myself even though I turned the cancer around with alternative medicine and all that but. It's only through this deeper work that we've been doing that I've understood how deep that is, that to actually go in there and transmute the actual code, the, these destructive codes or the epigenetic destructive codes that are being passed on, um, that seems to be... Uh, where it's it's very challenging and um, I'm still I haven't figured out the key to how to do that how to <laughs> recode you know to actually transmute these codes yeah there's um, there's a kind of a lineage that's been working on this it starts with Timothy Leary mm-hmm. and uh he recognized you had to be in a discrete altered state to reprogram. Mm. And uh, he successfully did this, you know, with uh, quite a few uh, prison inmates that were getting ready to be released so they could be tracked after their release, you know, their, mm-hmm. their development. Uh, and he used LSD to reach these discrete states right. and right. Uh, to have them completely transformed their lives, which, in fact, they did. Uh, and we you know, know about kind of John Lilly's work, too, which is in yes. that lineage, right? Yeah. Both these guys influenced me. I have a 10-channel model that I developed because of their work, because I wanted to know exactly uh, what state somebody was in. And, mm-hmm. you know, I see people come to me from all over the world. They're in all kinds of hell. And yep. I want to know exactly where they are and how to meet them there. So I created my own map. I could have created a 100 
channels, but I created 10 because that was sufficient for me. I knew what I could pack into those Mm -hmm. so I could track where somebody was at. Uh, For example, uh, if uh, you are very mystically enlightened, but you were sexually abused as a child and you have post-traumatic flashbacks and let's say you can channel people, Mm-hmm. Okay, because I've worked with people like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and then you get your post-traumatic stress triggered mm-hmm. because entities like you get in your car one day and there's somebody sitting in the seat next to you. Yep, you freak out. Okay, so that person is stuck in what I call channel five. This is a, a channel where the the dead can be found. It's a frequency. If you know how to uh, really train your brain waves into that region of theta you can find that and the thing is uh, what's going on in channel 5 is blocking channel 10 an integrated non-dual living of channel 9 in life yeah to be able to find that and then work at that level but reprogramming really happens at channel 9 that's the I am mm. place okay. Okay. okay keep going and keep going and you've got to be in that place, not just think it, not just sense it. Mm-hmm. You've got to be in God consciousness. And that requires a powerful holotropic state to be in. But once you're there, you can look at anything. And you can do it without fear. Okay. And so you can go into that DNA, you can go into anything that's a tra- tra- trauma, and work with it very compassionately. I have people in channel 9 record messages to themselves that they can listen to the next day when they're back in channel 1 everyday ordinary reality so they can hear from their own higher consciousness wow. the messages they were giving to themselves I support this with hemisync music because we record it so that the music also drives the states. You know, I can share this uh, little ten-channel model with you. Oh, at some that'd point. be yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, yeah, so that the, yeah, that very much connects to my own process because I have used psychedelics, and every time I've I'm in that state, I'm at channel nine, and it's very but it's it's the integration of that back into channel one and then um it seems like it's a process because i got very clearly that to truly heal you have to have conscious relationship with every as far as the physiology with every cell in your body is conscious relationship and um with i don't know why it is but that's where I've had uh, uh, blockages is how to get every time I, I can get to channel nine very easily, but it's these programs in channel one or, or wherever they are um, seem to they, be they, they come right back blocking the 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 wisdom that's coming through. Yeah. Um, so. What I have people do is um, uh, wear a really good headset, okay? The best you can afford, okay? okay? Because sound quality is everything, you right. know. Uh, uh, my friend Byron Metcalf has some great music. He started out Hemisync, now he's got his own 
thing he's involved, but uh, it drives both hemispheres so that they're in sync, you know, hemi, mm-hmm. hemisphere sync. Right. Okay. Uh, and can pull you into Channel 9. Then you can sustain a long-term relationship with this programming state. Oh. And then you listen to it every day for like three months. First thing when you get out of bed. And I recommend actually listen to it before you go to bed. Listen to it first thing when you get up before you get out of bed. And then if you can do a morning yoga or meditation, put the headphones on. The quality of the sound is important. Yeah, but I got a $400 pair of headphones. So I got that part taken care of. But what is the actual program material that you're playing through the headphones? Yeah, let, 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 hold on a second, Al. Okay. So, Byron, he's just really working this area. This is called Dream Tracker, which is pretty good, but Intention, mm. I recommend for this. Okay. Uh, and, of course, his Shaman's Heart series is really good, too. But Intention and Dream Tracker, I recommend for this. Uh, and when you record for yourself, because you, you, you actually send the programming in language, okay, you direct it in. You can visualize it as you're doing, too. But have this music in the background not so loud that you can't hear your voice. You want to be sure to hear your messages. And you have to record when you're in Channel 9. Oh, oh okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And, and you're doing this in a normal uh, waking state, not in a holotropic state or anything. You're listening in a normal state, but yeah. you have to get into yeah. Channel 9, which for most people means they really have to alter their consciousness to get there. Yeah, so, I don't need much. But. You mean, so, yeah, so, you're, the, music, so the music itself is not is not getting you. How do you, how do you get to yeah, Channel it can, 9? It can get me there, you know. Uh, it can be more powerful uh, if you have psilocybin yeah. you know, or LSD yeah. or something. But if you know how to get there already, which I do, I don't need that to get mm. there, you know. Uh, the headphones is all you'll need with that kind of music because mm. this this music is meant to drive these altered states. Mm. Great. Okay, that's that's a good, okay. We'll we'll check that one out. That's I mean I, I you know here's the thing is that I of course I've come across that technology and all of that, but we're um, there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of trial. There's a lot of experimentation that's out there in these healing modalities. A lot of it is garbage, and so you know you're 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 turning on you're turning us on to something that you're you're verifying w- works. So that's great. <laughs> yes, this has to be done like religious practice. I see. You know, so as it, a shamanic healer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I emphasize the importance of sacred ceremony. You know, you need your altar. You need your daily practice, what you can call the symbolic life. I see. You've got to yep. be connecting to source. Don't even try to heal yourself until you're connected to source. Well, so th- this is so check this out then, Mikhail, is that is that OK, Melissa and I both are con- we, we're we're constantly um, work um, being in touch with our intuition and being a clear channel for unconscious energy and always trying to keep that open as much as possible. Just, I, I don't know if it's, it's the, you know, is what's always going on with us, but 
we don't have a at this point right now a daily ritual we don't have a ritual practice in our lives right now and we feel um good enough whole enough because we have this continual relationship that's going on all the time we feel like we we're we're living a spiritual life 24/7 but we don't have that disciplined ritual aspect yeah so what i'm talking about is a code and uh the code you need passes through the ritual it's in the imagery it's in the intention that you put into the imagery the tangible things okay so uh you want to teach the conscious mind to speak the language of the unconscious because it is not interested in your ideas it's not interested in your concepts yeah okay <laughs> it doesn't speak that it's like speaking japanese to somebody that only speaks english I it see. doesn't mean I any, see. yeah so uh you'll find this in young but this is also a big shamanic principle okay yeah let's take okay because i have this one all the time uh women come to me in their 50s or 60s because they had abortions for whatever reason when they were younger okay now as they're getting older they're getting more spiritual uh they feel like you know they've got to take responsibility for what happened they're feeling guilty, regret, all this sort of thing. And I can act as a kind of a channel mm-hmm. in that and facilitate conversations, which can be very healing. But let me suggest how a shamanic ritual can, can help. Okay. Okay. You ha- you know, most women, they commit an abortion. The boyfriend is not with them. Right. Right. They go in there alone. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's drama in itself. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And if you know what happens in there, you know, it's it's not pretty. And uh, and the situation can be abusive because often the arrogance of the doctors doing the abortions, too, you know. So uh, a ritual that takes this into account, and if possible, the boyfriend can be a part of it, but usually they're long gone, you know. So you get a best friend or something to accompany you. You, you, you get a fruit like a big grapefruit or something, okay? If there are multiple abortions, you get multiple fruits, okay? You put them on your belly, you wrap yourself tight like a linen sheet, okay? You put a black stone in your mouth, and in your partner's mouth, you put a like a cherry red piece of candy. You go outside, and you dig a grave, Okay? Your partner helps you cut open the sheet and put these babies in the ground. Mm. Then you spit out the black stone that symbolizes your despair, your shame, whatever. You put that in the ground too. Into this grave you dug with your own hands. And then your partner slips from her mouth into yours the cherry red sweetness. Then you drop some seeds, perhaps, or a sapling into the hole, and with your hands you bury it up. Now, if this is a lover you're doing the ceremony with, then go home and make love. Mm-hmm. And if it's a friend, pick a favorite restaurant or go have a cappuccino together. In other words, in finesse it with celebration. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
this speaks the language of the deep psyche. You know, Jungians can have a field day with all the symbols in that, but right. Right. it's not meant to be interpreted. You know? Yeah. So, so you're saying, and Robert Moore said this over and over again as well, you know, that, that, um, despite the, okay, so here I am here, and Melissa has a you know, much easier job of, um, taking ritual seriously and living through the ritual and allowing the ritual to enter her belief system. I have a harder time with that. And that's, you know, where we are, you know, societally. And, um, and so what, what do you say about this conflict, this conscious conflict between the unconscious that knows Literally, probably, maybe back to our animal, monkey heritage, you know, millions, maybe years of ritual, hundreds of thousands, at least years of ritual. And it knows that. And then this modern, postmodern conscious mind, scientific mind that says, you know, no, that's 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 bullshit. And there's that conflict going on. Yes. Right. So the mind has to be taught how to speak the language of the soul. Okay, our minds have gotten alienated. We've put too much importance on our concepts and beliefs. The mind is a magnificent thing, but it should be a servant of the heart and not its dictator. Right. Uh, and uh, this, these rituals are rooted in instinct, you know, as are all rituals, really. And uh, Whitehead said that, you know, the, you can see when... Certain animals have leisure. They start to play. And if you watch, there's a kind of a ritual form to it that they go through. Right. And human ritual is an expression of that animal type of play. And then later, the mythology, you know, the imagination opens up and and, uh, carries it forward more. And then the theologians come along and parlay it, or the philosophers into doctrines, you know. And then the, psycho- the scientists come along and abstract it and reduce it to particles and what have you, you know. So there's a level of an estrangement way up here, Yeah. you know. Yeah. But you can have all that, but don't forget the roots, you know. Don't forget the source from which that stuff is springing. So you can build a bridge between your conceptual mind and its beauty and power and what other parts of you need. You know, the animal has needs different from the intellect. And the soul of that animal has needs that are different from the intellect. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it makes total sense and at some point, at some point, you have to um, see as you speak this language. Um, you know the, the 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 analyzing mind wants to say, "Okay, I can believe that, but give me a definition of the soul." And okay, well, I can believe that, but give me a definition of this, and give me a definition of this, and it wants a clear ideology, methodology, circuitry to be able to trace all of these things before it feels comfortable letting go. It's a control freaking magician (laughs) mind that wants to know all this before I'm going to let go and let, you know, my, you know, let, let these unconscious illogical processes work. 
I want to have a clear map of it so I can let go. But of course, no, you know, no, no, no. That never uh, okay, that so happens. you need to um, unblend from your intellect. Yeah. Okay, yeah. because uh, you're possessed in that case by the intellect. Yes. So yes. it wants the ideas. It wants the logic. Right. Like a dog right. wants to chew on the bone, as Eckhart Tolle would say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It has its own hunger. You are not that. Right. You are its owner. Okay. Just, you see me moving my hand and my fingers. I do so at will and it obeys me because I say so. Right. And it's the same way with my mind. You can gain that kind of control. Right. So right. that you lead the mind rather than the other way around. Mind has a job to do, but uh, science is interesting, concepts, philosophy, uh, I love all that stuff, but you have to realize they are imagined from the mind itself, which is the outgrowth of the unconscious, and it's just versions, just reality machine making realities, okay? And what you want is a belief system that supports your whole being and doesn't violate it. It doesn't have to be true. It has to bear fruit. So it needs to increase your sense of meaning, increase your sense of love, increase your depth of feeling and joy, your sense of purpose. If it's giving fruit like that, if other people are benefiting, then that's pragmatically true. Follow me? Right. Oh, I I follow you completely. And... um... I don't fall into the far end of the um, of that logical control freaking need, but it's there enough to where, you know, I bring it up to show you that there's that issue that that block. Yeah. Block. So if you practice disentangling or uh, uh, disidentifying from it, then you have more freedom and you can choose. Today, let's try out Dionysus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. yeah. Right. Okay, because the the intellectual pattern you're describing is more characterized by Apollo. Right. Apollo. Right. So right. a little vacation from Apollo. Let's uh, experience life or look at something through the lens of Dionysus. You know. Now there's a program in me that's blocking Dionysus. And yeah, if, sure. if, if you look at Robert Moore's model, the four archetypes, right? Right. It, right. It's occurred to me that. The warrior, as it rises up, naturally depresses the lover. And as the lover rises up, it naturally depresses the warrior. And, but, uh, you know, and so that's one of these things that, that's happening. Yeah. Let me say, uh, beautiful and elegant as Moore's model is, keep yourself open to other mythological models, you know. Greek, Greek mythology offers you a much richer, so you have more notes right. to play. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even Bob Moore knew this. He used to tell me, he says, you don't want to just play one note on the panel, one chord. You want the whole 88 keys, you know. So even he was not a true believer in his four archetypes, you know. Okay, he was doing something for masculine psychology and trying to pare it down so it can be communicated and we can learn from it. But in fact, his mind was much richer than that, you know. Oh, yeah. So do we, the, do we, do more, we want to, no, go ahead, go right ahead. The, the, the more, uh, mythological images you have, okay, it's like more keys on the keyboard to explore and express. So. But let me move on to possession. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, great. <laughs> because that would be one type of possession. 
Okay, yeah. possession of yeah. the intellect, you know, taking up too much space, you yeah. know. Uh, and their instinctual, uh, possessions, you know, uh, urges, impulses, like people with attention deficit disorder, mm-hmm. you know. They're not necessarily doing things because they want to, it's just they're compulsive. Yep. And they do them. They're restless and they, yeah, Neuro- distracting So you could call themselves. neuroses, pathologies, complexes could also be called possessions. That, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jung thought so. And uh, art, there's archetypal possession. Mm-hmm. So that's more like where uh, you're overly identified with the warrior, let's say, or the magician or whatever. Right. Right. Uh, and you don't allow any of the other archetypal possibilities to have a place in your life. Right. So you get a bit monotone and boring after a while. Even you can get bored with yourself if you're possessed by an archetype, you know. Yeah. And some of them, it can be quite psychotic, like uh, the archetype of the Savior or something like that. Mm. You know, There's something like that going on, these people standing on the street corners trying to convert you and yeah. so yeah. on. That's beyond complex. They've identified now with the sacred, but in a psychotic, ungrounded way, you know. So there's archetypal possession, complex possession, uh, traumatized parts can possess you. Now, yeah, yeah. Okay, we all have complexes. We all have part cells or subpersonalities. Right. The only ones that are a problem are the ones that are overburdened by trauma. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And those make up the pain body. Yeah. You know, yeah. your personal aspect of it. Okay. And uh, those need healing. But they need your higher self. They need your consciousness to be established. Your connection with the sacred has to be there, or there's no way the most hidden, hurting parts are going to let you near them. Channel 9? Channel 9? Yeah, that's right. Because without that, uh, the protectors, the managers, and the firefighters are going to come in and distract and make it look like everything's okay, Jack, but it really isn't. And, and, you're, defense system. and you're sure about this, right? That it takes Channel 9 to be able to... That, yeah. that higher state to be able to go into to those those subparts to the pan yeah. body. Yeah, but what you can say if you're working with somebody is say, just get in your truth self. It can help to meditate. It can help to help to pray, but you'll know when you're in it because you're unblended with these other parts. Right. If, if you're feeling terribly afraid and, and you feeling like you want to run away or something like that, well, that's not your truth self. That's a part. Yep. Okay. It's overburdened. You know. Parts should have a full range of perspectives and emotions, mm-hmm. but when they're traumatized, they only have one. They get reduced to one. Yeah. You know, yeah. and one might be a protecting kind of attitude, another might be a fearful thing, another might be enraged. But whatever that part uh, under the burden of trauma locked onto, it suppresses all the other emotions around it. So. To be able to get to that and to witness it with love and compassion, you have to be connected to the sacred. Your true self or your higher self has to be coming through. Okay. Otherwise, it won't let you touch it. Okay. Okay. This is why shamanism has a lot to teach psychotherapy, self-care. Okay, because this is its magic, knowing how to get in there, knowing the language of the codes, you know, Mm. which is all clothed in mythology and what have you, and ritual, but... Right. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, a lot of people, they come into therapy, they have that kind of stuff, so they're possessed by that. Some people are possessed by what other people think, you know. Oh, yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> the average person is living by 
the slots that society tells them to live by, by the rules. They want what everybody else wants. Uh, they eat what everybody else eats. Um, and they judge themselves when they're strained. So that's the better procrustes, you know. Uh, and this can ruin a life. You can maybe get rich and successful, even famous, but there's no real life in it. It's all a sham. Oh yeah. Okay, because you're oh, yeah, just yeah. poisoning. Right. I I see it out there, and it's that's where that's where the average population is, and can't can't yeah. imagine living that way. But that's right. Where, where so, we're at. so that's a you know kind of an outward kind of possession by the collective. Just be average. Just be normal. Be like everybody else, and that's a fear-based strategy. Mm-hmm. But the neurotic is trying to bust out of that and can't do it. Right. That's me. Okay, because there's somewhere in the mind, there's a judge saying you can't do that. Right. Uh, you shouldn't do that. Okay. And so you're caught in the conflict right. between the right. impulse in it to, to liberate, to individuate, or to create, and the impulse that says you shouldn't be doing that. Okay, so uh, then uh, the, let's say the creative artist, the, the person that has liberated from that neurotic strangulation, is then really able to do it, really flying with it. Okay. Right. Right. So, okay. So, uh, anyway, that being caught in the middle is a kind of possession. Something has you. Yep. Okay. So, for the most part, these are the kind of possessions you see in a psychotherapy practice, you know. And you might call them addictions, you know. Mm-hmm. You can come up with some other name. You know, it's a yep. problem. You're stuck. Yep. Okay. Uh, there's nothing supernatural or uh, transpersonal uh, in particular about those states. Okay, but in indigenous cultures, those would be viewed as forms of spiritual possession. Right. You know, and so there'd be rituals for that to help liberate you. And some of those rituals can really help us psychologically. But then say people with multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder there can be what's called a noxious altar and a noxious altar uh, can uh, be suicidal, homicidal uh, can claim to be the devil uh, and uh, generally it's composed of a lot of rage that's turned against the self system and yeah. it's personifying yeah. it so it's operating quite autonomously and it can pers- respond to uh, psychotherapy if the therapist is resourceful enough and knows how to work with it. But uh, depending on how severe it is, how dangerous it is, it may only respond to something like ritual exorcism or shamanic depossession. Uh, so that's a part of the self system. That's trauma has been so acute. It has created this pocket of rage and self-hatred that can be dangerous to oneself or to others. Okay. And this rage and self-hatred, if it doesn't make its way into um, highly destructive behavior, can make its way into the body, be displaced through the body, and you can come up with all kinds of psychosomatic illnesses or pains and all all that kind of yeah. stuff lower back pain that persists for decades and right is that true is that right true? right but in uh, working with dissociative disorders I, uh, 
they present themselves as entities, you know. So uh, they want you to believe that that uh, they're a completely separate person or being, you know. So then, uh, if you're going to be empathic, you've got to interlock with them on that level, you know, and work with them. Uh, and sometimes you can do a mind meld or blend where you can put them together with other parts of the self. But usually, if you try to change these parts that way, mm-hmm. they resist. They don't want to die like that. That's okay. right. That's right. But now there's a whole nother level. Uh, so I occasionally do ritual exorcism, and I occasionally happens in the breath work. Happens a lot in Europe. Doesn't happen that much in the States. Mm. Happens in South America. Mm-hmm. So, uh, where you have especially malignant entities yep. that profess hatred of God, uh, or claim to be a ghost, you know, who was murdered or something like that, and they, they want to punish all men or all women, whatever, whoever hurt them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, they're coming through, and in fact can do that, can be homicidal, this sort of thing. Right. You get some of that going in these uh, butchers, you know, these rapists and butcher women and this sort of thing. Okay, it's a spiritual disease at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you grew up in Haiti, for example, mm-hmm. you, you have benevolent possessions, but you have possessions uh, by ghosts. And those can be life-threatening. Okay. So because, I mean, what I do, you know, depth psychologist, clinical psychologist, medical anthropologist, shamanic teacher, working internationally, you you better bet that people with those kind of problems are hungry to find people like me. Yes. Okay. All right. So... Uh, in most cases, I'll tell you what I've experienced, because okay. few psychologists would be willing to admit this or talk about this or even be prepared to do it. But, okay. Uh, so, in one case, a guy is caught in a past life, and he's a Frenchman. He's an Amer Indian in the past life. This is very possible, because the French uh, and the Algonquins in Lakota, uh, French were butchering them, and, uh, you know, some type of karmic, you know, turnaround, <laughs> payback, you know, with Frenchmen now in Lakota bodies and Lakotas now in French bodies is possible. Uh, so I've seen a lot of that kind of phenomenon. Don't know if it's true or not, but the, the phenomenon itself is real. Okay. Um, so this guy is on the floor. His eyes are white. They're rolled up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And nobody's been able to help him. And I'm called in, and I get down to his ear on the floor. His name is Thierry. I said, Thierry, where are you? Like that. And he says, I'm fighting. I'm being killed. He's got me pinned down. I said, who? Where? He says, he's Lakota warrior. You know, he's trying to kill me. He's got me pinned down. I can't come back. And I said, yes, you can. I'm getting my pipe now. And I went and got my I have a prayer pipe, you know. And I loaded that thing, did the ceremony for it, uh-huh. drew a breath, uh, a breath, turned it around, brought it down to his mouth. And I said, smoke the pipe now. And he took it and he smoked it. His eyes rolled back, you know. 
and he starts to cry and he comes back. Right. Now you could call that a soul recovery, but he was actually possessed by this entity, whatever it was in this past life, coming back. Okay. Another guy, a Muslim. Well, how does that Paris. carry on from there? What is his experience after this occasion uh, in, in terms of this entity? Does he does he feel relief from this in the future or as this goes on in his life? Yes, he does. In fact, uh, I mean, he's inordinately interested in Lakota uh, culture and, you know, he's reading up on that and he's buying Lakota things. And okay. So he's working on a framework of meaning right. for this. Okay. Another guy, and this is uh, only one time because I've banned him from my workshops Whoa. until he gets some individual work, but uh, this was uh, three months ago in France. He came from Paris to my workshop. Uh, I'm near Geneva, but I'm in the east uh, of France. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a whole medical uh, form you have to fill out, and there's a psychiatric section, and write down the medications and uh, I tried to screen for as much kind of probable contraindications as possible. Know what I'm getting into, okay. But uh, none of that fit this guy. I had to change my medical form after him, okay. Wow. Young, I'd say 30 or younger now, this man. Uh, little guy. Uh, he goes through three of the four days of the workshop. Everything's just fine. Uh-huh. And finally, uh, it's like a breathwork session. I have to leave the room to go pee. You know, it happens, right? So <laughs> of I, course. I come back and, you know, I've got 45 people in the room. They're all stopped. I hear screaming outside in the hallway. And most of my healers have gone outside and are working with this guy who is screaming and uh, his eyes are also rolled up white okay and but I've got a real team of good healers you know they're, they're really on it and uh, I said okay uh, so I went back in to be with the people mm-hmm. in, in the main lodge you know we're all sitting there and I said well this is going on for a long time maybe 30 minutes it went on for three hours I said, sooner or later, because I I know now they don't know what to do. They're going to come get me and ask me to help. And I said, I'm going to bring it, bring the guy out. And they said, how are you going to do that? I said, if I have to shoot ice water up his asshole, I'm going to bring him back. Mm -hmm. But notice my attitude when I say that. Oh, yeah. yeah. You may not stay in that state. Warrior. Warrior. Yeah, that's right. So. So it finally happens, you know. Uh, my assistant comes in and she goes, okay, we really need you. Nobody knows what to do. And we're afraid he's going to die, you know, or we've got to call the hospital. We're going to have problems with the police, you know. Because what are you doing here, you know. <laughs> I said, okay, give me a plate of raw meat. Get me a turkey baster from the kitchen. Fill it with ice cold water. Uh, turn the shower on just the cold water I want it as cold as possible and when you have all that ready let me know okay so by this time they had carried him to a bed in one of the dormitory rooms you know and there was a shower nearby which was convenient Mm 
Yep. So when I got there, the guy's still on the bread screaming as loud as can be. And uh, one of my assistants said, he's actually possessed by a god in Egypt who won't release him. And I just said, bullshit, watch me release him, you know. And I got my face right down in that guy's face. He couldn't see me yet. But I said, it's Mikal, I'm here. Get ready to come back. Because you will come back. I said, I'm going to put you in an ice cold shower if you don't come back this minute. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to put a turkey baster up your ass and squeeze ice water. His eyes popped back and the look of terror on his face. (laughs) And I knew I had him. And Luca, uh, this young man who's my assistant, seven foot tall, this guy, I said, pick him up and take him in the shower. I want his clothes off. I want you to pin him to the wall. I want the cold water all over his body. Don't let him out no matter what he says. Okay. Until he's completely back. So took him into the shower, did that. I'm standing behind, so I'm watching and observing too. As Luca does this, you know. The guy's screaming, he's so goddamn cold. Stop, it's awful. Right. I said, it's not as awful as the state you were in, dude. I need you back, and I need you to stay back. Now, if you want out of the shower, you want the cold to stop, you're going to eat this raw meat now. Mm. And so he did. Okay. So he didn't eat it all. He just ate some of it. Okay. But then he got sick, and he needed to vomit. Right. So we took him to the toilet. Let him go. And with that, he was back and he was relieved. Right. Mm. And he said to me, I've been on every continent, working with every exorcist I could find. Nobody has been able to help me. Thank you. Now, I'll tell you, I learned that way of working in the jungle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And what I've seen in the jungle is incredible, too. Okay. Now, that was a possession state. Okay. The claimed entity is some type of Egyptian god. understand he's a Muslim. I don't know what country he's from, but it's not too far off to think he might have ancestral links back there. You know? But in the jungle, I had uh, this uh, lady from uh, uh, the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. He's uh, a doctor. I won't say what kind, but she's very smart. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she's there because she's possessed. Okay. And I have the only exorcist in the area of Iquitos, that, that part, that's the, the ayahuasca capital of Peru. And, you know, I worked with her for years, you know. And, uh, so she does the exorcism, and she also had to use water, you know. But when this lady was possessed, it was an ayahuasca ceremony. When this lady was possessed, the whole place smelled like shit, mm. which is not unusual with ayahuasca. People shit or they vomit. But in this case, yep. it was so repulsive, and one entity would be cast out, and she'd calm down. And then this place would smell like shit again, mm. and the entity would be back, be cast out. So when we were done with our time in the jungle, I knew there was going to be more work, and she came here twice to my place at Crow's Nest. 
yeah. for uh, more healing, more exorcism. And I don't know how many we did, probably 20, something like that. But finally, I said, you know, this gets old. She was born in a home for orphan children in the Caribbean, and there were all kinds of deaths that took place there. So oh, it's possible that wandering about souls or something looking for a body. What I noticed in the exorcisms was that we were exercising children. Mm. And they were scared. They were terrified. And they had to be reassured, you know, that this was not their home and there's a better place that we're going to help them transition to. Okay. Uh, but in the end, I had to say to her, okay, you got to help me here. Okay. They're, I don't know where they're coming from now, but you're just too open. You gotta shut these frickin' doors. You don't let them in. And when they are in, you gotta help me push them out. Don't make me do all this work. You know? Now we're trying to get her to take self-responsibility. Right. Yeah. yeah. Alright? Now, I have no idea what they were. I kinda suspect they are transpersonal entities. It, uh-huh. you know, it, it is something like that. But I don't need to believe that. You know, this, uh, it'd be clunky, but you could reduce this to Jungian terms. You know, yeah. some type of personification, of some type of traumatized complex. But the point is, with somebody like this, psychotherapy will not work. Unless you call that what I'm doing psychotherapy. It's yeah. ritual exorcism. Okay? It's very ancient. Technology of the sacred for resolving this kind of a problem. And you write about the warrior energy there. Right. So um, I have a question. So how can we bring um, this technology, this sacred technology, into the collective, into our world? Um, Do you want to tell them about what our... our our art that's in creation. Well, that that's a little different, but I I what I'm you you know that you you understand very clearly how about the shadow projection into our society and all this repressed shadow energy that's taken over our culture and um our culture is is imploding. America is imploding on itself. And we're uh, in an environment here in the San Francisco Bay Area where uh, most people are very asleep. And then the ones that are actually interested in a more alternative therapy um, or quote-unquote, new age or spiritual practices, they avoid uh, the shadow areas um, and they don't want to admit and they don't want to go and take response what you did for that woman. It took a lot of, you know, a lot of this work, but ultimately it came down to taking self-responsibility in order to heal and that means part of self-responsibility is the willingness to go into these shadow areas that are not being metabolized. So how do you think that we can um, 
bring this more into our culture? Well, people want to be comfortable. They don't uh, want to be humiliated. They don't want their self-esteem to take a dip. Yeah. And uh, how it could not. Uh, I'm embarrassed by what's happened uh, since this election, you know, the whole election process, campaign process and everything. Yeah. And seeing my fellow Americans behave in such an appalling way. I know I'm part of that, you know, I'm part of the American fabric. And I have an international presence. This is embarrassing, mm-hmm. you know, to, to take, you know. And the rest of the world can see what it is. You mm-hmm. know. But uh, people want the easy way. They want it smooth. They want it as pretty as possible. And I'm sad to say even uh, many Jungians, you know, uh, the highest levels of individuality and creativity aren't in the analysts. There are a few of them, like Marion Woodman, and, mm-hmm. and I mentioned James yeah. Hellman. They're, yeah. They're, okay. But most people that go into this are going to spend a lot of money and they want the big credential. And it's kind of an aristocratic psychotherapeutic yeah. credential. And uh, they want to drive their Jaguar. They want to enjoy their swimming pool. They want to go to opera. They want to have nice social interactions. Okay. So that what is that's a reflection of culture, American culture. Yeah. Okay. And its shallowness and its persona field. Okay. Yeah. Now, there's the real deal among union analysts. I just need to repeat that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, no, I realize that. And, and of course, in Young himself. And like you said, Marion Woodman and, and a few others. And, yes, there are those... There are there are real shaman in that in the, yeah. that tradition. Yeah, what yeah. I was going to say too is that Young uh, went through a similar um, place in his time. He went through both World War One and World War Two, and he saw the same thing going yeah. on: this massive shadow projection and how Nazism started. And and he he ended up. It seemed like. Going back into his, you know, into his own process, receding away from it because everyone couldn't be reached. Yeah, I thought much about the World War II thing. I, I know that's somewhat true from what I do know, but I thought more about the First World War. But you know, he had the traffic with the Nazis, and he got accused of being a Nazi, even though his closest associates were Jewish. You know. Yeah. But he did make some state mistakes. The convention of the day was to talk about the Jew, and it wasn't always in a positive term that right. Jung right. Sp- speaks of the Jew. So he inadvertently set himself up for charges of Nazism. But actually, the whole, that whole thing was repugnant to him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And he did think of the whole Nazi thing as part of the mass psychosis. Right. Okay, so it sounds like, um, well, we've been talking for a long time, and I get the feeling that probably all of our energy is probably waning. So Yeah, right, there's an energy curve. Hey, we can talk again. Maybe you will find some things on this you want to go into further and, you know, open up. I'm I'm aware we didn't address everything, you know. We didn't address everything, but I think that, you know, this really is, this is really where, 
we wanted to go and is where you went into when you started going into possession and you went into the pain body and you started talking about intergenerational and um, 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 uh, past life um, trauma and how it's passed on and the uh, being able to reprogram from the higher state channel nine that you called it. And you, you, you did give us this whole, you, you, you plopped onto our lap this whole kind of um, paradigm here and, and, and way of, of looking at this material because, because to us, this shadow material, the more, the more important, it's like just the first level of getting to the, of, of understanding the first level of your shadow of like the Jungian understanding of, you know, that, that which the culture denies, you know, and you can't that you can't express into the culture or into your family or whatever, you know, gets hidden back there and all of that, just the basic, but it goes way deeper than that. It goes into these programs, these deeper pathologies, that these these entities, it goes back into archetypal shadow material, back into the animal heritage, back into processes of life itself and stuff. And so there's all these deep levers, layers of this material and that's where we really want to go. And we started to, and we, we, I think took a chunk out of that with this conversation is get past the first level of, you know, just you look out in the, in the healing communities or just the sort of alt mainstream alternative new age and alternative healing. And everyone's talking about the shadow now, but they're at that first level. And where we're going with you on this is boom down into some real nasty programs that are running. Yeah, yeah, right. And maybe running throughout the universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that maybe running throughout well, the universe exactly. and certainly in the collective field of, of humanity. Jung, uh, you know, it's uh, the cosmic anima. Uh, th this is the cosmic soul or psyche. Before he died, you know, he stretched the psyche to envelop the whole universe. Mm. So yeah. in that yeah. move, he became more shamanic and mystical. Yeah. So that we're in the psyche uh, rather than or as much as the other way around that the psyche is on us. Oh, so yeah. It stretches yeah. throughout the yeah. cosmos. Why can't there be other beings, other entities, you know, and not necessarily in our uh, three, four dimensional space time geometry, but in other geometries? So. That's what Melissa keeps telling me yeah. to consider. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I've I've had yeah I'm very uh, connected um, naturally intuitive like you know it just comes through and I have had too many experiences in my life to prove that to be the case so.